This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to discuss Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. This book was suggested by eight or so different people on the Tim Ferriss Show podcast, including guests such as Mark Bell, Art Devani, Walter O'Brien, Matt Mullenweg, James Altucher, and Ryan Holiday. And there's one more um, in episode 155. But uh, this, this was one of five books suggested by by you jason for this year so this is the second yeah, book this is the second one list. on the so uh, i suggested for you at least i was going to read yeah. this regardless so tell us why you suggested this one uh for for me to read well i've been a fan of talib's work for for quite a while now um i think he's one of the uh one of the brightest thinkers uh out there uh, he's uh <laughs> he's a bit uh iconoclastic which i i tend to like uh, and uh, very, very willing to think against the grain and has made a lot of money thinking against the grain. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think his approach to uh, statistics and basically just thinking about how, uh, you know, his specialty, it really has been randomness and rare events and that sort of thing. And that's how he's made his money uh, is betting against the market on, expecting rare events. Uh, but, um, you know, he, he, I think does a better job explaining how probabilities and, uh, and randomness actually work in for a layman than just about anybody out there. Um, I think he just does a tremendous job with that. And, uh, I don't, I don't know that there's anyone, I, I can't think of any, any type of person who wouldn't benefit from, engaging with and interacting with Talib's uh, main points about how the world works in terms of probabilities and randomness and all these things, just in terms of understanding uh, certain, uh, certain things are out of, out of our control and learning to control what you can control, learning to prepare for the things that you can't control and, and so on. It's just, there's, there's just a lot of, of potential fruit there. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to discuss this one this year and thought you'd really benefit from it. So, uh, like I said, I think, I think basically everybody, everybody could. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You said, uh, it's, it's written for the layman. Uh, and it, and it's, it's also interesting that because I, I just run, I, I, I decide on the 52 books and then I run them through a randomizer. So it was interesting to me that, uh, <laughs> Kahneman's book came up before this one. So we, so we got to read that one before, before this one, but, uh, back to the layman's term, <laughs> I, I almost learned more about Kahneman's work from this book than, than in Kahneman's, from Kahneman's book. book yeah. yeah. Um, because he does have, have that good way of, of, uh, of putting things in, in not, not only just for layman, like in layman's terms, but also really funny. I mean, he, the whole, I was just laughing the whole book. Um, <laughs> well, again, so. he's so irreverent and iconoclastic. And I mean, he, he goes out of his way. I mean, he's a great follow on Twitter. 
uh, who, you know, and, and we'll, we'll link that in the show notes, of course, but, um, he's a great follow on Twitter in part because he just finds ways to pick fights with people that he regards. <laughs> so you have to, you have to have followed his work for a while to know that he's got like little acronyms and things, uh, such as, uh, the intellectual yet idiot. <laughs> So, uh, he, 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 there's actually a, um, he's got an article online that we'll, we'll go ahead and link to. That's actually his explanation of what the I, Y, I is. So he refers to these people as I, Y, I's in shorthand on Twitter or whatever. And, you know, if you've been following him a while, you know, he means that this is an intellectual yet idiot. So <laughs> I think, it, I think you brought this up in the, um, uh, Heraclitian fire. Yeah, I, I did. Episode. Yeah, you're right. You're right. With the, with the fuck idiot. Yeah, it's exactly right. And, and, and again, Talib is so much in the same sort of vein intellectually with a guy like, uh, uh, Chargoff, uh, who, who wrote, uh, Heraclitian fire, um, with, with some of these, uh, certain, you know, certainly with, um, with uh he's he's of a of an intellectual piece with uh with uh mr with with Feynman uh with Richard Feynman who again you know Feynman railed against the ridiculously unnecessary jargonish writing of uh humanities and social scientists scientists uh humanities people and social scientists and and basically talked about how listen if you can't if you can't explain things simply it's just because you don't really know it and Talib goes into the same kinds of diatribes, the same, and he does this all the time. <laughs> and it's just, he, he's, and, and again, he, he is a brilliant guy. Now, and I hate to say this in the same breath as that, but I also regard him so much as a kindred spirit in a lot of the same, like he has the same kinds of antipathies that I do, <laughs> where it's like, oh, come on, you know, if you can't say it simpler than that, that's just because you are an idiot and you're trying to sound smart. Yeah. Right. Uh, and actually a, a, a friend of mine recently sent me his, um, uh, a good friend of mine who's a, uh, who's a, who's uh, a molecular biophysicist sent me his teaching statement. He's applying for some jobs and so on. He's been on a, on a postdoc for a while and now he's working on working his way around in terms of the job application season and all that. And uh, he sent me his teaching statement. And said, "Hey, can you take a look at this?" And I sent it back to him, and I was like, "What? What is this? Like, why are why are you writing like someone who's just trying? Like, this sounds like you're trying to hit all of the all of the things that you need to say, but don't believe a word of it. And you're actually just, you know, you're you're just trying to hit the buzzwords, and it's just drivel." And he was like, "Well, you're you're the only person that said that." but you are right. Like, I don't believe what I'm saying. And, and I was like, it's totally obvious. Like, so, and, and so we ended up, you know, he ended up going back and rewriting it and actually put together a really good one. And he's just really bright. And he has such a, he's the same kind of thing where he's like, all these people in my field are such idiots. They just expect like, if you put the right words in the right order and so on, and you make sure you use big words, people think you're really smart. So he was trying to do that in his, in his, in his, uh, like he was intentionally trying to do that in his, um, teaching statement. And I convinced him to go otherwise, but Talib is someone who just has no tolerance for that. 
Yeah. And you can see why in this book. It's just brilliant. But yeah, his IYIs, his intellectual yet idiots are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're people who are, you know, some Ivy League, Oxford, Cambridge, or similar, similar label-driven education who are telling the rest of us, one, what to do, two, what to eat, three, how to speak, four, how to think, and five, who, how to vote for. Uh, <laughs> and then he, he goes in and he says, uh, the problem is the one-eyed following the blind. <laughs> <laughs> These self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut in Coconut Island, meaning they aren't intelligent enough to define intelligence, hence fall into circularities. But their main skill is capacity to pass exams written by people like them. <laughs> With psychology papers replicating less than 40%, dietary advice reversing after 30 years of fat phobia, macro macroeconomic analysis working worse than astrology, the appointment of Bernanke, who is less than clueless of the risks, and pharmaceutical trials replicating at best only a third of the time, people are perfectly entitled to rely on their own ancestral instinct and listen to their grandmothers or Montaigne in, in such filtered classical knowledge with a better track record than these policy-making goons. It's just, you know, that's, that's from his intellectual yet idiot chapter in skin in the game, which, you know, it's, it's just terrific. Well, um, and you mentioned he, uh, he picks fights on Twitter and, and, uh, <laughs> I actually made a list of people that he managed to, to, to take off in this book. And so I'll just read through that. I, I kind of made it as I read journalists, economists, MBA scientists, finance professors, the author of The Millionaire Next Door, Warren Buffett, MBAs, and the author of The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. And George Will, especially among journalists. George Will. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, quite. Yeah, he, he does not hold back at all. And I, I, I love him for that. And I, I, again, I think he's got a lot to say and a lot to, to teach in these books. So we should probably get to that. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we kind of hit on some initial thoughts, but uh, I, I did want to read the initial or the uh, the paragraph in the preface, just the first paragraph. This book is the synthesis of, on one hand, the no-nonsense practitioner of uncertainty who spent his professional life trying to resist being fooled by randomness and trick the emotions associated with the probabilistic outcomes and, on the other hand, the aesthetically obsessed, literature-loving human <laughs> being willing to be fooled by any form of nonsense that is polished, refined, original, and tasteful. I am not capable of avoiding being the fool of randomness. What I can do is confine it to where it belongs, where it brings some aesthetic gratification. Yeah, what a and, great opening paragraph. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I, in, the, in the column I wrote, okay, I'll bite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so. and, and, and he just, I mean, again, he's very much in the same, in terms of a writer, I, I put him in the same kind of, as an essayist, let's just put it this way. I mean, because th th they had some other additional things in terms of writing fiction and all, all that. But as an essayist, I put him there in the same kind of trajectory as uh, someone like uh, G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis. The mm -hmm. same kind of acerbic wit and humor and biting sarcasm and self-deprecation, the same appreciation of aesthetics and, and tradition and the same just razor sharp intellect that those guys yeah. had. And, and that people like this are a joy for me to, 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 to read. So that, that's my initial 
uh, you know, we, we usually do our initial reactions at the beginning. I've already given you mine, so more yeah. of yours. Yeah, I, uh, very similar. The um, it, it was a joy to read, and he he actually wrote that in the end. Like, I, I hope this book is, is a joy to read, and and it it definitely was. Another initial reaction is uh, his style of writing. It's not it's not really like a at least how I how I viewed it, it 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 didn't seem like a linear approach that most bo- books take like you know this building on this building on this the the approach almost seemed more random it was like he was he was he would bring in things from from different areas and then it all tied together and I I actually really enjoy that uh, but. Well, it's really a collection of essays that are that are bound together in sections to to reinforce one another. So he does mm-hmm. come around to certain points again and again, but it's not repetitious. That's what's so yeah. brilliant about it is he's able yeah. to do all of that at once. Yeah, that's keeping a lot of balls in the air intellectually to be able to write like that. So yeah, uh, and I, 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 I didn't, and, and you've, you've read you've read other of his is it, do, do his other works follow this he, kind he, of a format? He's, he's always like this. Okay. Yeah, he he just he he gets an idea and he writes around the idea. Yeah. And what what and you notice at the end of the book he talks about how when when this book began to have success or I don't know if you read the second edition I read the second edition for for the show, but um, the end of the second edition he talks about how when this book began to have success he began to get you know journal editors and so on asking him to write some distillations of some of his ideas for. Uh, for publication and articles and things like that. And they'd ask him like, you know, how long, how long, uh, how long will it be? And he found that, that writing for that kind of writing in that way with the specific set word limit and specific, you know, trying to get a, a specific outline going at the beginning and all that. He found that completely stultifying and, and really painful. He said it was, it was not fun to write for the first time in his life. He had no fun writing, Mm-hmm. Um, whereas he finds writing something like this, it's just, you know, it's, it's like breathing for him. Well, yeah, yeah well, th- that's the thing is that he's actually writing to distill his own thoughts. He gets these ideas and he's trying to, he's trying to distill the, the concept that he's recognizing that other people haven't gotten well enough and that he needs to get on paper to really distill it in his own mind. And so he writes around it and, and then just keeps polishing and getting all this together until it fits together. And then he's got his book mm-hmm. and there, there's a real craft to that. And, and, uh, and, and I think that, that, uh, that also serves well for the reader who you get to think along with him to some degree mm-hmm. with these. So, yeah. well, yeah. And, and the, the main gist of the book is, as, uh, described in the title is that we are easily fooled by randomness and he goes into different different ways that that happens. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of those in 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 subsequent sections here, and I think we'll actually probably cover a lot of them in our quotes. In our quotes yeah, yeah, because uh, there's some uh, with him being so witty and, and sarcastic, uh, the, the quotes were quite abundant. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into those. And, and, and uh, one one other thing that I think we should do right up front is 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 talk about what what he means by randomness. So mm-hmm. what, what he's really getting at in terms of being fooled by randomness is really this idea. And this is the, this is the, one of the central pieces of the book is that there is a tremendous amount of just straight up chance that determines what happens in life. So, you know, 
let's say you are you apply to a university and you you apply to an exclusive university and you've got a 3.9 or well i guess whatever the weighted gpa equivalent would would be these days uh, to that but you've got you know a top level gpa you got great test scores and everything well you still even with all that given all the other people who are who are applying you still may only have a 60% chance of getting in right mm-hmm. you, because there's all sorts of other people that are equally qualified that ha- that you know are valedictorians in their class or whatever and you may not get into that exclusive school and the difference between going there and going somewhere else that might be equally exclusive that's a massive difference in your life obviously we understand that that aspect of chance is always there but there's all sorts of other things that involve chance that we just don't appreciate and we, we've talked about this going all the way back to, to Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, where Gladwell talked about, look, if you're born in a specific part of the year, that's, that's totally out of your control. It's a random thing to a, you know, in, in, in large degree, and it can totally determine whether or not you have a chance to become a billionaire in a given industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be the determining factor. You could be just as brilliant as Steve Jobs more brilliant, but you were born three months too early or three months too late. Yeah. You missed the window. Well, and then and a couple of cool things about, about that, uh, you bringing up Clydewell, he, he talks with him regularly and then, you know, he, he, he meets with Kahneman. So it's like a lot of the other people we've read. Yeah. There's a little intellectual cadre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that part was cool. Um, and then along with what you're saying there about randomness, like the, the other side of it is we, we look at, we look at successful people and think that they right. were successful based on, on, uh, these certain criteria. And in, in one of his points, you know, I, I said that he, he ripped on, uh, Warren Buffett in the book. Uh, one of his points in the book is statistically, you're going to get a Warren Buffett out of all the people picking stocks and doing that. You're, you're going to have somebody that, that has that level of success just, just by random chance. Um, yeah, it doesn't actually mean that he was smarter or did anything better than anybody else. And that's, that's the part that I didn't, I, I should have finished in, in my explanation of what he means by fooled by randomness. The randomness thing is there. The place where we get fooled by it is when we then begin to assign, like you said, like you're saying, you be, we begin to assign intelligence or some other quality to people on the basis of their success when their success may be entirely the basis of total randomness mm-hmm. and all of our success or failure is, is the result of some combination of randomness and other factors that we actually have control over and how much is due to randomness is often difficult to determine. And that's what this book is very much about. And it's well worth that read. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to start with your first uh, first quote? <laughs> Why don't you take your first one? All right. Well, since I have some business uh, degrees, I don't have an MBA, but I have a MIB, which is a <laughs> Master's of International Business, which is basically an MBA, but uh, instead of finance, I took international finance. And, and it, it means you can done. speak you can speak the Espanol. Yeah, yeah, and and I had to do some stuff in in, in another country. Since I, I have that background. Uh, I'm going to read some of the MBA quotes <laughs> where he, he rips MBAs. 
the, fir- the first one, I begged the MBA reader not to take offense. I am myself an unhappy holder of the degree. <laughs> so that's how he, uh, he uh, starts off. But then surprisingly, MBAs, in spite of the insults, represent a significant portion of my readership simply because they think that my ideas apply to other MBAs and not to them. <laughs> yep. And those are just a few of the, uh, the great rips that he did on, uh, on MBAs, which Jason, you, uh, you've stated before that you, you agree with in, in terms of, Oh yeah. Uh, in terms of business, my, the students, business students and the students that I tend to get in my classes. Yeah. That, that matches up well. <laughs> so here, here's a good one. <clears throat> I believe that the principal asset I need to protect and cultivate is my deep-seated intellectual insecurity. My motto is, my principal activity is to tease those who take themselves and the quality of their knowledge too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, does that. Yeah, and he he continues there. He says, cultivating such insecurity in the place of intellectual confidence may be a strange aim and one that's not easy to implement. To do so, we need to purge our minds of the recent tradition of intellectual certainties. And again, that's what this book is so much about, is it's it's teaching us that a lot of what we hold to be true isn't necessarily true. That got, These people may not be successful because they were smart. They may just have been lucky. This may not have worked because of good planning. It may have just been random chance. And we need to account for that in how we're actually planning for the future you can't just go off of track record because you know what you just may have enough idiots doing it enough monkeys at the typewriter that the that the result is a res, is 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 completely chance as a uh, as opposed to artistry mm-hmm. as opposed to skill and so he, he really wants to to push this idea of understanding exactly how little we we do understand this is a very it's this very much socrates Understand that you really don't know anything and then plan accordingly. <laughs> that's what yeah. that's what he wants you to do. Well, and along those lines, my next line of quotes uh, deal with journalism, which uh, <laughs> he, he despises. And, and I loved that because I've I've given up news lately. And, and uh, this kind of gave some some words to uh, to what I've what I've kind of sensed or felt uh, about the about news and journalism. So. But his point, along with what you were just saying, is a lot of what, what you hear about news, like you, you can't comment on something as it's happening. There's, and, and especially if you're not considering historic, historical ramifications. And, and which, which you often can't know. I mean, that's yeah, his point. Yeah. And, and you, can't, you can't do it in a 24-hour news cycle. Like you've, you've, <laughs> you're just trying to comment on stuff and, it, and, it, and it's not really... Well, I, I love so. his comments on the, uh, you know, the Dow went down, you know, half of a percent today on the basis of such and such. And he's like, yeah. how the, how would you know that it was on the basis of what <laughs> it's it's gone down half of a percent? That's called noise. Yeah. It went down, meaning it went down by so little that it it's meaningless. The only yeah. explanation is there was there, there was no meaningful move today and it's total noise. So carry on. <laughs> Well, and that's yeah, and and that's a good distinct distinction in the book uh, between noise and and uh, meaning. Uh, so that, that was very helpful to to think of things in in those terms. Uh, so my journalism quotes have got two here. <laughs> journalism may be the greatest plague we face today, as the wor- 
as the world becomes more and more complicated and our minds are trained for more and more simplification. And then uh, the second one, it takes a huge investment in introspection to learn that the 30 or more hours spent studying the news last month neither had any predictive ability during your activities of that month, nor did it impact your current knowledge of the world. So those were just a just a t- two of them, and I mean, he would just say, I, I, "I would, I would guess every chapter of the book had just he just ripped journalism." Well, and what's crazy is he's writing that in two thousand one, right? This is this is published in two thousand. It? it was published okay. in two thousand one. Second edition was oh four, right? But you you realize that like this is before, uh. This is before we really got the tone, like the, the, the full on internet level news, uh, news hose, yeah. you know, fire hose of, of news that we have today where like, you know, the, as we've talked about going all the way back to the first episode, when we talked about Kevin Kelly and him talking about the stream and living in the stream yeah, and my kind of antipathy for that or my, my sort of horror at that description of how you're going to live in this perpetual now of the stream. And I'm going, eh, you know, I don't, this is before even thinking about that, that he's yeah. saying, come on. I mean, Fox news was only five years old when he, when he wrote this book. Yeah. Right. So you're looking at the 24 hour news cycle had just barely begun. I mean, we, we weren't even, we weren't even there and he's already saying this and yeah. he's right. Yeah. <laughs> there are some things that the fact that he wrote this in 20, th- this book has aged extremely well. I mean, we've talked about this on some other books on like, well, did the predictions hold up or whatever? Some of the stuff that he's talking about in this, like it, it's more, that's in one example, but it's more true in 2018 than it was in 20, 2001 or t- 2004. That's for sure. Well, in, in uh, Kahneman's thinking fast and slow is 2006, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but now he's basing, you know, thinking fast and slow is is based on, you know, it's compiling all, you know, all this research from Kahneman and Tversky from before that. So, yeah. you know, it's it, he, I don't Talib is not uh, acting with their, their prior stuff. But. Do you think Kahneman read this book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he, he references. Remember, he references uh, Talib in the uh, in the preface of that book. So uh, yeah, th- but there's some re- back and forth. Remember the thing you brought up about um, Kahneman finding his friend in New Zealand and then finding his friend again in uh, Yes, yeah, London. and Kahneman didn't actually account for statistics as well as I would have expected there, and actually Taleb would have something to say about that. And he did. He, he had a section about that in the book, and I was like, didn't, I mean, and it was exactly what you said. And I was like, <laughs> did Kahneman not read this? Because he, that's the, he, uh, Taleb was talking about that error, and and it's the, the error that you pointed out that Kahneman made in that in in the book. Yeah, well, and the, this the, was written before that one. The thing is, though, Talib is it, it repeatedly says that even trained statisticians, even people who have really good training in, in mathematics and, and probability and all all sorts of things, we tend to make those errors. Yeah, and we tend to be unconscious of it when we do, even even though we should know better, even when we do know better. Yeah, and and that's something that even that Kahneman talks about as well. So I mean, it, they're 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 both one of the things that's actually uh, key to remember about both Talib and Kahneman is that where they are wrong, they're they're at least humble. Yeah, 
right? They're at least acknowledging that, yeah, I'm probably, you know, as guilty as anybody on some of this stuff. And I'm probably falling prey to it even in these pages on occasion. They'd be yeah. the first to tell you. And, and you know, you, you got to give them credit for that. Yeah. Um, so my next my next thing, uh, less of less a humorous thing, but again, getting at what Taleb is doing in this book. And one of the things that he that he does throughout this book is he wants to make a distinction between models and numbers and probability as it's usually perceived and its actual function in the world. And one of the one of the the mantras of this book is this idea that mathematics is really a tool for meditation, not something that actually maps onto the world perfectly. And yeah. in this, he actually is following the the, the Greek philosophers like uh, like uh, Pythagoras or uh, or Plato and others who they actually did use mathematics as a meditative tool, and they used it for philosophical mathematics was a tool of philosophy. And that's really what Taleb is wanting to do. And then he wants to, to apply that to how you how, how, how you actually interact with the world. This quote actually, I think, gets to that to a large degree. He says, probability is not a mere computation of odds on the dice or more complicated variants. It is the acceptance of the lack of certainty in our knowledge and the development of methods for dealing with our ignorance. And that's what he wants to get at repeatedly. And, and he develops this thought further and says, listen, in textbooks and casinos, yeah, you get you get distinct odds. You, you're, you're told that, you know, you get you basically you get a mathematical problem like there are this many cards, this many possible outcomes or this, you know, you spin the roulette wheel and this is how many. Yeah, you get that in those environments but when you're actually out in the world you don't know how many variants there could be i mean the number is infinite so how can you calculate probabilities when you have potentially infinite possibilities well mm -hmm. you can't what you can do is you can talk about probability in terms of a lack of certainty and then what may or may not be more likely based on certain factors but we can't calculate it the same way you have to learn that you have to learn the uncertainty and then learn how to plan for it as best you can and he really wants to hit how that has to work and i think he does a terrific job again repeatedly explaining explaining that that idea mm -hmm. all right you're up my next one uh it is optimal for someone when in doubt to systematically reject the new idea information or method Clearly and shockingly, always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, this is where he's very similar to G.K. Chesterton, who uh, you know has one of my favorite quotes on this. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. <laughs> he's in tradition. G.K. Chesterton would say that tradition is the most democratic thing there is because tradition is the democracy of the dead. All the dead who establish those traditions over generations, figuring out that, well, things work better this way than this way. They've made their vote. And so if we're going to overrule them, we'd better have a good a good reason for it. Why we as modern dictators are deciding to overrule the 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 uh, the, the, the votes of of our predecessors. Talib is totally on board with that. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote something similar to that, too. One it's an article I assign at the beginning of every one of my classes. Uh, that he actually wrote as a preface to a, to a, a volume on um, 
on uh, it was a it was a uh, a new translation of Athanasius on the incarnation, uh, but the it was published separately as on the reading of old books. And Lewis says you should read two old books for every n- one new one you you read, just as a way to insulate yourself against the new ideas, because old ideas at least have been tested. New ideas, well, you know, you never know what's good or not yet. You can't know until history, until those those have been in hi- history long enough to to have been tested. And Talib is totally on board with that. Yep. All right. What's your What's your next one? All right. Let's see. Um, you take one more while I look for my for my next next one here. I'm I'm choosing between a number of them. Well, I just got a kick out of every time that he referenced the the Nobel Prize. He called it the Swedish Central Bank Prize in honor of Alfred Nobel. <laughs> well, he, he he actually he's right about that though because the uh, the 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 um, uh, Nobel Prize in economics cannot actually call itself the Nobel Prize in economics this the same way as as the rest. It's actually the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. Uh, or the Swedish National Bank's Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel is actually its full name. Okay. Uh, the reason so he's, he's for just that, calling it the- well, he is partly he's doing that because that's its name, and because he wants to remind everybody that it's actually not one of the original Nobels, and that it shouldn't be looked at with the same reverence as the rest. As he says later, that they're gonna. That the that the committee who has awarded those those various awards to certain people that he calls out in this book uh, that they'll be regarded with the same kind of um, laughter eventually as you know the people who opposed Galileo or, or you know otherwise uh, that you know they're they've been ignorant uh, repeatedly so uh, so yeah <laughs> well he he also talked about the having to bow before the the king of Sweden. And so I, I, I just kind of like throughout the book, I took those as uh, another cut at uh, at the at the prize or or at the whole yeah. situation. Oh, he, he, he's he's made, he's taken a dig, no doubt. Yeah. So okay, so let's see. Um, I have another one here. If you want, yeah, well, go, for you, go for it. Go for another one. All right, so he, he makes this comment. He goes, the publisher will never put on the jacket of a book anything but the best <laughs> praise. And I laughed at that because Skin in the Game has a his, the first quote that uh, Talib has on, on the back of Skin in the Game is this one. The problem with Talib is that he, he's an a-hole. Or, uh, okay, sorry. The problem, <laughs> the problem with Tal- Taleb is not that he's an a-hole. He is an a-hole. The problem with him is that he's right. And this quote is from Dan from Prague, Czech Republic, <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> so he he goes against that uh, that quote in, in this book that the publisher will never put in the jacket of, of the book anything but the best praise. And the very first one on Skin the Game is how how he's an a hole. I just thought that was <laughs> when I saw that at the bookstore. I, I mean, I was I was laughing so hard. Yeah, when you get to the point as a writer that you can begin to choose your jacket blurbs and put <laughs> put that one on there, you know you've made it. Dan from Prague. You know you've made it. Okay, so um, my next one uh, would say, here we go. Uh, <laughs> he says, uh, 
ridding out, perhaps ridding ourselves of our humanity is not in the works. We need wily tricks, not some grandiose moralizing help. I despise the moralizers beyond anything in this planet. I still wonder why they blindly believe in ineffectual methods. Delivering advice assumes that our cognitive apparatus, rather than our emotional machinery, exerts some meaningful control over our actions. We will see how modern behavioral science shows this to be completely untrue. So, I mean, and this is where he gets to this idea that, listen, and, and he has the entire, entire chapter on this in terms of putting wax in your ears, that you need to learn, as, 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 as human beings, we need to learn that, well, I got, I got weaknesses. And, you know, telling me, you know, elsewhere, he says, uh, there's a category of people who think that the cure for obesity is to inform people that they should be healthy. <laughs> and he's like, well, no, 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 really, Sherlock. That's you think. <laughs> but, you know, maybe just telling us that we should be healthy isn't going to do anything. You actually need to take specific steps and you need to find ways to take specific steps to trick yourself into actually doing the stuff that is that is healthy mm-hmm. and that you need training in the tricks and you need motivation for the tricks and you got to find find ways to push those buttons and that's not so easy that's not just about moralizing it you got to actually have you, you got to play around to get that. You, you got to, you know, if your weakness is junk food, then get the junk food out of your house and find ways to to disincentivize it and play games with yourself to where you're you're no longer a slave to it. And and per- he's, perfect perfect example of that is the Zombie Run app. Have you <laughs> yeah. heard of that? Yeah. yeah. So you, you uh, if if you hate running, down and but you you need to to run to to get healthier or something get get the zomb- zombie run app and and while you're running it creates a story that z- <laughs> zombies are chasing you and you've got to get around but it's using gps so it knows what's coming up and you know you got to get around this this hill uh cuz zombies are chasing you so it turns it into a story but yeah i got one more one more here this one's just right. a nice aside from him he says i can be extremely humiliating when someone rubs me the wrong way with inelegant pompousness <laughs> and this is where I, you know man i am i'm right with you dude i you, kindred spirit here <laughs> well along the lines of the uh wax in the ears that you just mentioned this uh this quote recall recall that they accomplished Accomplishment from which I derive the most pride is my weaning myself from television and the news media. <laughs> and I thought I thought it was so brilliant his his uh, the way that he parts from news and, and and doesn't watch news. He doesn't completely just like not have a TV or anything like that. He has the TV on all day long, and he has it on news. But he turns the volume off. Yeah, that's in his that's that's in his trading desk. Yeah, at his trading yeah. desk. Yeah. So so yeah, he he basically watches them all gesticulate and 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 do all that. But there's no power behind it because there's no words. He can't hear a thing they're saying. And that's how he puts the wax in his ears for news media. And I, I just thought that was so funny. Yeah, yeah. You got another one. Me. Yep. Okay. This one was, I, I, it was like a throwaway line. It was just kind of tossed in there, but uh, we, could, we could sit and discuss this for, for hours. Recall that the epic heroes were judged by their actions, not by the results. And, and it's just a, 
Yeah. But I mean, what are we judged by today? We're mostly judged by our, by our actions. No, the by epic our heroes. No, by uh, our yeah, results. By the, yeah. yeah, by the results. Sorry. But the epic heroes were judged by their actions. And um, yeah, just something to ponder. It was just kind of a. Well, and th- this is, again, this is where I got to give my dad a lot of credit over the years. Uh, is he, my dad, has, my dad is remarkably, uh, has remarkably over the years been very resistant to hindsight bias. And trained me in particular. I don't know how much Stephanie got from from him on this, but uh, but uh, but he trained me in particular to always consider uh, to always judge decisions on the basis of the information that was known when the decision was made, not on the basis of the of the outcome of the decision. Hmm. And that was something very very early. Uh, and, and actually what's funny is I learned that as much from him in watching football as anything else. Cause we'd go to a game together. We, we, uh, back when we lived in Bloomington, we'd go to watch some relatively bad big 10 football. Um, and we'd sit in the stands and, and something would happen and everybody, everybody around us would be moaning and complaining about a bad play call this or that or whatever my dad would turn to me and be like "Ah, that wasn't a bad play call they're just judging it on the basis of the outcome but here's what they were doing like Mm -hmm. this is the reason for it and you know just because it didn't work doesn't mean it wasn't the right call yeah and i got that out of sports as much as anything and you know playing sports with him coaching me at different points learning that you know you sometimes you make the right decision and it just doesn't work yeah you know, yeah. Could you have done something else? Yeah, but who's who knows what the possible outcome of that might have been? That might have might might have gone, might have gone even worse. Yeah. You can't judge by outcome. All you can do is judge by whether you made the best possible decision, whether you made a defensible decision, given the information that you have access to at the time. And, well, he, didn't, and didn't that's he, Talib's big thing repeatedly here. And didn't he talk about it in, in terms of regret too? Like you you can't yep you can't look back and regret something. If at that time that was the information that you had, yeah, how can I regret a decision that that I would if I were given the exact same the exact same information today that I had then? How can I regret that decision if I would make the same decision given the same information? Yeah, I I, I can't justifiably regret that. All I can do is say, well, you know, chance and you know hindsight show that it it didn't work, but I don't know that anything else would have. Maybe yeah. maybe doing this would have, but how would I have known to make that decision? Can't yeah. can't regret it. Can't look back on that and say, "Man, I, I wish I'd have done something else." Well, you know, <laughs> did what I had, what what I what what I uh, thought was best at the time. Yeah, and you know, I, I that reading some of this actually makes me respect my dad that much more in terms of that emphasis in in his life, uh, which is hard to live that way because yeah. we we have a tendency to to kind of want to look back and and do some revisionist history and counterfactuals and all that. And Talib's point on all this is doing that opens the door to a lot of stuff where, again, you're, you're discounting the role of change or the role of chance. Mm-hmm. So here's a, here's another one for me. Another one of my favorites. Lucky fools do not bear the slightest suspicion that they may be lucky fools. By definition, they do not know that they belong to such a category they will act as as if they deserve the money. What's the what's the quote he starts every meeting off with? Like, 
we're all a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Fortunate to know that we are idiots. Yep. <laughs> Just a reminder, we're all we're all a bunch of idiots. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, my, one, one other uh, one. It's right. in the same the same section as that one. Uh, it's the same principle here. He says, uh, one cannot consider, here we are, uh, one cannot consider a profession without taking into account the average of the people who enter it, not the sample of those who have succeeded in it. And so much of this book deals with, with the survival, with the survivor bias the idea of only judging on the basis of the people left at the end, the people left standing rather than all the people who've you know been tagged by the dodgeball and are, are out he says, no, 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 you have to consider everybody who, who who's left or, or, or everybody who, who entered, not only those who are left. And he says, um, and, and the same concept here, $10 million earned through Russian roulette does not have the same value as $10 million earned through the diligent and artful practice of dentistry. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the $10 million earned through the artful practice of dentistry is much less based on chance. There's z- basically almost 0% chance that that is going to lead to you putting a bullet in your brain, right? As opposed to, say, a one in six chance that you die and you don't get the 10, the 10 million, the, the downside risk is much higher. So he actually, he's big on weight on, on weighting both sides of an equation. You're, it's not just that you got 10, 10 million. You may have gotten 10 million by being an idiot. So your 10 million is not of the same value as the person who got the 10 million by diligent practice. It's a really, really hard insight to wrap your head around, but he's right. Mm-hmm. All right, my last one. A mild degree of unpredictability in your behavior can help help to protect yourself in situations of conflict. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's outstanding. Um, okay, I'm, I've got one or two more. Let's see. Uh, okay, what sounds intelligent in a conversation or a meeting, or particularly in the media, is suspicious. Any reading of the history of science would show that almost all the smart things that have been proven by science appeared like lunacies at the time they were first discovered. (laughs) Oh, it's just so outstanding. I mean, but it's absolutely right. Yeah. The stuff that, that, that we all laugh about, oh, those idiots in the past. Well, they were idiots just like us. And this is one of the things that, that, you know, that that article that I mentioned by C.S. Lewis talks about that, that every age has the things that the next that the next era looks back and says about them. I can't believe they thought they they believed that Mm. even our own age has that. The problem is we don't have the benefit of the next generation to look back and be able to test ourselves with that. And so Lewis says the only way you can test yourself on modern trends and modern fashions is to go back and read the old books because you don't have access to the future's books. So at least take a look at critiques from, from antiquity, Mm -hmm. uh, which again, that's what Talib does. Talib has a way of doing the same thing there. And it's, it's just very smart. A couple more. This one's a longer one, but I, I, again, this gets to his uh, critique of uh, Warren Buffett among others. But uh, (laughs) he says, 
I will set aside the point that I see no special heroism in accumulating money, particularly if, in addition, the person is foolish enough to not even try to derive any tangible benefit from the wealth, aside from the pleasure of regularly counting the beans. I have no large desire to sacrifice much of my personal habits, intellectual pleasures, and personal standards in order to become a billionaire like Warren Buffett, and I certainly do not see the point of becoming one if I were to adopt Spartan, even miserly habits and live in my starter house. Something about the praise lavished upon him for living in austerity while being so rich escapes me. If austerity is the, is the end, he should become a monk or a social worker. We should remember that becoming rich is a purely selfish act, not a social one. The virtue of capitalism is that society can take advantage of people's greed rather than their benevolence. But there is no need to, in addition, extol such greed as a moral or intellectual accomplishment. The reader can easily see that aside from very few exceptions like George Soros, I am not impressed by, by people with money. Becoming rich is not directly a moral achievement. But that is not where the severe flaw in the book lies. And he's, he's critiquing their, uh, the millionaire next door. But basically he says, you know, come on. Like, you're going you're gonna to lavish praise on someone for becoming a billionaire and then not actually doing anything to use that money? Like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. When it kind of it glosses, over, it glosses over the randomness aspect of it. Which but is the part he, he hates about that. It, 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 well, he hates that, but he also hates the idea that earning money is in, in itself treated as a moral success. Yeah. And then that living austerely despite having money is actually a moral good. He's like, well, yeah. why? You, you made all this money. Now, what, what's the benefit? Like, how does it make you more moral not to use it? And that's actually a, a worthwhile point that I think I think uh, often people don't uh, don't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so and, and he mentions there his his respect for George Soros and the place where he actually gets his respect of Soros is something, again, where this is a place where, again, my dad is, is, is very, very much like this, and I've tried to live the same way. And he says, although Soros did not deliver anything meaningful in his writings, he says Soros is a lousy philosopher, he knew how to handle randomness by keeping a critical open mind and changing his opinions with minimal shame, which carries the side effect of making him treat people like napkins. He walked around calling himself fallible, but was so but was so potent because he knew it while others had loftier ideas ideas about themselves. And that idea of, you know, be willing to adapt to new ideas and to the randomness randomness of the world. And if something changes, change your mind with it again, mm -hmm. that that's something that Talib really pushes hard. And, and it's something that uh, that I, I really liked about this book. Yeah. All right. Uh I think one more before I'm going to save one for the, for the very, for the very end, but I think I'll do one more here before, uh, before we get to any additional discussion of, of specific thematic stuff. Well, while you're looking for it, I'll read, uh, this is praise from the back of, of this book fooled by randomness. And I thought it was hilarious. This is the book that rolled down wall street, like a hand grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Because he does pick on um, 
on Wall Street quite a bit and, and um, stock pickers in, in particular. Yeah, so here we go. Here's the last one that I was looking for. Why do I want, people might ask me, why do I want everybody to learn some, some, uh, let me try this again. People might ask me, why do I want everybody to learn some statistics? The answer is that too many people read explanations. We cannot instinctively understand the nonlinear aspect of probability. And that's in specifics, he talks about how interpretation is nonlinear in that a 2% move is not twice as significant an event as a 1%. It's rather four to 10 times as significant. And he says a 7% move can be several billion times more relevant than a 1% move. The headline of the Dow moving by 1.3 points on my screen today has less than one billionth of the significance of the serious 7% drop of October 97. And that idea, it's hard to wrap your head around, but getting some rudimentary understanding of statistics so that you can think around those problems and really spending time addressing that, that kind of the difference between signal and noise and all that's really useful. And again, I think this book does a great job of, of addressing that. Yeah. So, all right. So let's get to the, we've gone through a lot of concepts and so on through various quotes. What are some additional things that you had in mind that you wanted to touch on before we, before we wrap up? Well, I wanted to discuss uh, Kahneman and, and heuristics just briefly uh, a question I asked you in the Kahneman episode of, of Thinking Fast and Slow was, what was the impact of this book in, in economics? And uh, on, on page 187, Taleb says that uh, Kahneman is, is the one who has exerted the most influence on economic thinking over the past two centuries. So that, that was quite the, uh, quite, the, quite the comment. This, Taleb also helped me understand heuristics better, I think, than, than Kahneman did. Um, and, and even one of our books from, from last year had a, had a better definition than, than, than I think Kahneman gave in, in the book. But one, one of the ways that Taleb talked about it in, in this book was that our heuristics are basically our rules or code for living. Um, and it, and it's, it's more of the unconscious code or, or rules that we live by, but that, that helped me understand it more that it, that it's more of our rules of, or code of, of living. Um, and, and with, with that in mind, I, I, I wanted to ask you a question, Jason on, because Kahneman's book, that was really the first time I'd ever heard or read about heuristics. And then now it's, it's, it's come up in this book as well. How, how do emotions and heuristics differ So is, that's the, the full on. That's the full question. But okay. like with heuristics, it's, it's our, our code of living, but it's, it's kind of that unconscious so, immediate response to things, but so are emotions. So how, how do those two things differ? So heuristics are, uh, heuristics are mental shortcuts. That's the main difference. So okay. what you're talking about is mechanisms uh, that explain heuristics are ways of explaining how we make certain decisions using shortcuts mentally so that we don't have to actually think about 
using second order thinking that that system two that that Kahneman talks about. And for those of you who who didn't listen to that episode, it's a couple episodes ago. Uh, it's worth worth the listen. Also worth the read of that book. Um, but uh, but basically. It's just explaining how we get from point A to point B in that kind of thinking that we that we have certain shortcuts, certain biases, certain heuristic tools to 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 think without having to logically go through and slow down each time we come across a given situation. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what a heuristic is. Now, emotions are more states of mind that are loosely categorized into uh, specific descriptors like anger, uh, you know, anger, grief, uh, all, all sorts of happiness or whatever, you know, you can, that's in an emotional state that can be triggered by, by heuristics. Uh, they can influence heuristics but it's a it's a different category in terms of how how that all works. Now, the thing is, it all relates together. So your emotions are impacted by what happens around you and by, you know, circumstances and so on. So if you have uh, if you have a pet die, you're probably going to have a specific sad emotional reaction to that because something has the stimulus, the external stimulus is going to trigger specific chemical reactions that are going to affect your, your mood and so on. Uh, but that's not the same thing as a specific heuristic there, right? You, that That's independent of that at the same time on the flip side, your specific emotional state may impact which shortcuts get taken. So if you are, if you're feeling more happier and more energetic, you may take a, take a specific, you may be more prone to certain biases. And actually in the behavioral research, there's some indications that your mood or your emotional state actually impacts what kinds of decisions or what kinds of biases you're more prone to in certain states. Mm -hmm. So, it, they're they're related, but they're not they're not the same thing. You're you're talking about. I mean, again, any all of these things are abstractions, right? I mean, mm -hmm. when we're talking about system one, system two, we're not talking about like two separate. If this is if if, for, if you've seen have you have you seen the Pixar movie um, Inside Out? No. Okay, for the for the the audience out there who has in Inside Out, you, what you have is you've got like different little people inside the head of, of each person that represent different emotions and, and different things. So you have anger and you have happiness and you have depression and all of these different things that when that person is and they're all working together in the brain and they have a central command center and all this. And actually kids only can have one in charge at once, which I think is actually so true, right? A child is either, in like the depths of rage or <laughs> flips the switch and is really happy, like five minutes apart. And there, there's, there's not mixed, there's not room for mixed emotional states. Right. Yeah. But it's not like that with human beings that we have like homunculus number one, which is 
system one and then homunculus number two, which has the glasses on and thinks more slowly and it gets passed along. These are abstractions. They're they're ways of narrativizing the ways that we actually make our decisions and the biases and all these the heuristics are, are talking about ways that we tend to default. But it's not exactly but it's still a story to explain how we work rather than how we work itself. And that that's a distinction that's important to make. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, cool. I, I had a few other things for nitty gritty, but uh, do you have any? I mean, I can I could go for hours on this book. I think one one thing that I really uh, really enjoyed in this is his critique of uh, economic modeling, uh, of macroeconomic modeling, and uh, and and econometricians in general. This idea that uh, he says, you know, what has gone wrong with the development of economics as a science, and he says, answer: there was a bunch of intelligent people who felt compelled to use mathematics just to tell themselves that they were rigorous in their thinking. <laughs> that theirs was a science. And he basically says all of this modeling that's been applied is either misguided in treating historical situations as though they're controlled trials that actually tell us how the world works. But the problem is all of these are one offs, right? Just because it happened that way in the depression doesn't mean it's going to it's going to repeat itself the next time around because all these things have changed. Mm -hmm. So you can't model that. You can you can use the certain things as tools to give you something to meditate on and to think about and maybe to understand a little bit about about the mechanisms. But we can't really model things the way that that econometricians have seemed to think. And, and, and again, he calls that into question and really thoroughly mocks that field to a large degree. And I think does a good job with that. Uh, and, and this is where actually, if you're a listener to the Econ Talk podcast hosted by Russ Roberts, which I think is one of the best podcasts out there, Russ has been very influenced by Taleb over the years and has become increasingly skeptical. If you've listened since 2006, he's much more skeptical of uh, the uh, decided uh, the, dis- the 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 decided weight of the evidence in various uh, uh, economic dogma than. He was in 2006. He's much more skeptical about what we actually know than he was in 2006. And a lot of that goes back to him being very familiar with, with this kind of, this kind of critique. Well, and he, he just had Talib on his, his podcast twice in the last six months. Yeah. So we'll have to, we'll link those as well. There were, there was one part that was really, it really interesting to me. The, where they would deliver food to birds at random times <laughs> and the birds would start doing dances. I, I guess thinking that, you know, if they would do a certain dance that that would cause the food to come because it was, it wouldn't come at a, uh, the same time every, yeah, every these time. are the old BF Skinner, Skinner box experiments where what was happening is the bird would be doing a specific thing when the food would come. And then before too long, the bird would actually begin to identify the thing that it was doing. It would be like a superstition, like, wow, my team scored four runs when I wore this hat. So I need to make sure that I wear this hat in the fifth inning the next time, because then the birds did exactly the same kind of thing. (laughs) Which, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, my cat, Oscar, is is like this. And he's I got to give him credit. He's a smart little joker. Because, you know, he knows I don't like him begging, uh, but he still, you know, he when he smells or hears the tuna can opening, there's nothing that cat likes in the world more than tuna. And he believes that if I'm having tuna, he should have some. So 
there's one time, this is a few years ago, he hears me opening a can of tuna and comes over and starts to beg a little bit and I was not having it. So I picked him up and I stuck him in the bathroom just adjacent to the kitchen and shut the door and shut him in there until I was done preparing my my tuna and all this. And then I took the tuna juice that I'd squeezed out of the can and a little bit of tuna. I put it on a plate and I put it down by his food, which is just outside the kitchen over near that bathroom. Uh, and so then after a few minutes, and I, I, I was satisfied that he wasn't going to identify those activities together, uh, you know, identify the, the begging as what was giving him the reward. I open the door and he trots out and discovers the tuna there. The next day, the next day, and this is an N of one, I'm preparing food in the kitchen and I turn and I see the cat sitting in the doorway of that bathroom. <laughs> like he's in the bathroom looking through the doorway at looking at me like, okay, is this what works? <laughs> There's your example. And, and what would happen is the birds actually would do the same thing. They learned pretty quickly and they decided that their rain dance or their food dance is actually what brought them the food. Yeah. And again, just ways that we easily get fooled by by randomness. Yep. And we do the same stuff. And, and Talib actually admits like, yeah, I'm as, I, I found myself to be as prone to these superstitions as anyone else, despite the fact that I am like, I'm the guy who writes about randomness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm as I'm I'm as likely to do these things as anyone else. Yeah. I just hate myself for it. Oh, <laughs> uh, one other see. thing I, I have trouble with is the infinite number of monkeys eventually writing the Iliad. <laughs> I, I know with infinite, yes, it's possible, but it just still he, he he talks about you know if you had an infinite number of monkeys in a room eventually one of them would 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 type out the Iliad. It, it, it kind of goes back to the chaos and order. No, it, it kind of goes to the chaos and order thing. And it's like, you know, if you shook enough rooms with 747 parts, would would it in, in infinite number of shakings put a 747 together? Well, no. And in that case, actually, nobody would make that argument because it's not a matter of just putting it's not a matter of the pieces falling together. Those actually have to get, you know, stuff has to get riveted and screwed in and so on. So it's a little it's a more complex process. The argument with the typewriters is that if you gave them, you know, the it basically and ultimately you give enough information, ran, uh, random sequences are going to produce non-random outcomes. Yeah given a long, given a, a long enough time frame. Yeah. So the, the, the key there is your, your, your insight or your instinct there, your, your intuition is right. That it would never happen that you, that if you took monkeys and put them on typewriters, that any of them would actually produce anything coherent. But the, the key there is infinite, yeah. right? You have an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite amount of time given infinity nothing is impossible because you're dealing with infinity so it, it's it's really a meaningless example in that sense because it doesn't apply to the world as it works but the the, the purpose of it is as a thought experiment to talk about how ran how how random sequences can produce and do produce patterns that look non-random yeah and that we then assign wrongly non-random causes to those attributes or to those outcomes 
and the the key there is to understand that not every not, and not everything that appears non-random is actually the result of something that is anything other than chance. Sometimes chance produces something that looks non-random. So we have to be careful with how we assign causality. That's, that's really the whole point of that. And that's so much of this book is about that learning to be very careful about how you apply causality. And this is a very, very old warning. Very old. I mean, you go back, this is so much of this is actually a discussion. I mean, you can look in the in the Bible and the, the book of Job is challenging something like Proverbs, where you've got these ideas that, it, you know, if you if you behave wisely and you don't act like a fool, then your, your life is going to go better and you'll be rewarded. Well, Job does all these things and does it all perfectly and then <laughs> suffers mightily precisely because he does those things. And then his buddies come along and they say, well, dude, what'd you do? Because what they do is they they look at the con they look at the consequence they look at the outcome and they judge causality on the basis of the outcome and normally they'd probably be right but the problem in what Job what the book of Job is actually challenging is this idea that you can actually judge the process by the outcome yeah that's something that's fundamental to the book of Job in the in 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 the in the Hebrew Bible is this idea that listen just because you got a crappy outcome doesn't mean you didn't do it right. In fact, sometimes the right action can produce precisely that. And the, the book of Kohelet or uh, in the, in the Christian canon is called uh, Ecclesiastes uh, does. It has a lot of the, dis- the same discussions. And, and in fact, you've got time and ch- the verse that says time and chance happen to all of them. This idea of chance that how it impacts the wise and the fool alike. And who knows you, you may get, good or bad <laughs> as a result of what you do. And it actually may not, you, you may do the right thing and just get unlucky. Sorry. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's got a number of meditations on that saying, now eh, you shouldn't be looking just at the outcomes here. Yeah. So this is a very, very old warning and it's one that we need every generation. And Talib happens to be the guy that's stepping forward and doing that in this case. And he does it with some nice, mathematical uh quasi scientific uh tools to to aid him in in that meditation i think it's very very useful what what other books uh, by him have you read you've read skin in the game i've not read skin in the game though i've read chapters of skin because the thing is what he's done over the at, at different points is he's published like pieces of works or essays that that are chapters of different works that he's done so okay. I've read a number of things that he's written that are in like chapters of different books. Yeah. But I haven't actually read all those books. And that was one of the things I, w- I wanted to do this year is to d- I determined to read the actual books yeah. that he'd written. So this one, Black Swan and uh, and Skin in the Game were three that I wanted to get in. And then, of course, he's just uh, he's just now put out um, uh, another uh, the name of which is. Uh, or anti uh, skin in the game is the is the uh, most recent, but uh, anti fragile is the one also is another that I, I want to read all four if I can. Yeah. I, I want to read all four this year, yeah. Uh, because I think that, again I've heard him talk about this stuff. I've followed what he's what he's written. I've read a number of things that are in those, and I've listened to his summaries of all this. But I actually want to read the books themselves, yeah. And uh, and that's something that uh, that that 
doing this podcast affords me the opportunity to do. So, well, and you, you recommended the black swan to me. So that's on my list this year. Yep. And then, yeah, after reading this one, I want to add the two others to, uh, to next year's list. So you want to, cl- you want to close this out with, uh, in the nitty gritty with, with another thought. Yeah, I think, I, I think again, uh, there's so much richness to this book that I, I don't think, I don't think I could do any more, do, do it any more justice or do anything, any justice from here by, uh, by trying to spend five minutes talking about one specific idea. Uh, just you, you need to read this book without question. Uh, and, and that I, I'm going to, I'm going to leave off my, and, and I'll treat this as my conclusion. I want to leave off in my conclusion, his, um, his, his final word here. He says it took him an entire lifetime to find out. And, and that's a lifetime up to 2004 when he did a second, uh, second edition, but to figure out what his, generator what, what he's referring to in terms of the the generative core the axiomatic framework of his sort of philosophical contribution here so if you want to know what this book actually is about the core idea that underlies so much of what talib does here and also in the book he summarizes it this way we humans we favor the visible the embedded the personal, the narrated, and the tangible, we scorn the abstract. Everything good, aesthetics, ethics, and wrong, fooled by randomness, with us seems to flow from that principle. That's where he goes. And I, I think that's a great summary of what he does in this book. There's a lot of warnings in here. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of important ideas that are just going to, that if you're, if, if you want to think about how life works, there's a lot of really generative, fruitful material here to work from book that I, I can't recommend much more highly. Uh, I think this is one of those books that you talk about summer reading. We talked about this with a couple of our books. I put this along with like once an Eagle and a couple others, uh, probably thinking fast and slow, uh, handful of, the, of, of, of books that I would say need to be summer reading for every high school student. This mm-hmm. is one of those college students. Every college student should have read this book mm-hmm. and it's, it would be better as we'd be better off as a society if everybody did. So if you could only read one book, would it be this or thinking fast and slow? Probably this one. Really? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. What, what's your, what's your view on that? I, I would say thinking fast and slow, but I, I'm, I'm wondering if I had read this one first, if it would be different, but I think thinking fast and slow was such a, a mind opener for me. And I know you had, you'd seen a lot of those ideas already in articles and that sort of thing, but that was really the first I had come across that. And and I, I think just seeing it, uh, like, I mean, that, that I, I really, I mean, I had, I had some social scientific eye-opener. training. I mean, that's some of the stuff I've taught in the past. So that's, that, yeah. that was new. Yeah. Uh, but I, I like the style of, of this one a lot better. Yeah. And that's part of the reason that I would recommend this one over that one is that this one is one that people are, the people who start this one are much more likely to finish this one, I think, than they are to finish thinking fast and slow. So yeah. Yeah. now, now the thing is your best bet is to read both of them because thinking fast and slow gives you much more information about specific heuristics and biases that are inherent to the way that we human beings tend to think. 
but this one has a lot of very useful ruminations on and, and 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 is more memorable in some ways just because of the writing and it's more and so people are more likely to finish it uh who, who start it because it's just that much more enjoyable to read well what's funny too is the michael michael lewis book i have on my list this year the undoing project i didn't re- i mean i've had the book now for a while i didn't realize until this past week that that is about kahneman and he uh, uh what's the what's his partner's name Tr- uh, Amos Tversky. Tversky. It, th- that book is about them. I, I had no idea. So yeah, this is 2018 for you, Eric, is the year of Kahneman, Kahneman and Tversky. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've started, um, I, I may start doing this in my reviews from now on, but uh, asking myself two, two questions about the book. One, did it keep me up? And, and by that, was it, was it hard for me to put the book down to go to sleep? And, and I value sleep. I like going to sleep. So if, <laughs> if, if a book want it, like if I can't put it down, that's a really good indicator of, of how much I'm, I'm enjoying it. And so did this book keep me up? Yes. And then the second one, is it a tour de force? And, and I say that kind of, uh, uh, you know, in a funny way, because I, I, I always hate seeing like the reviews on the back of a book, like, what's this, you know, this, this is a tour de force. It's like the, go to uh, review for, for people. Um, but is this a tour de force? I mean, is this like one of the top books? And I would say yes. For, for me, I, 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 I liked thinking fast and slow, perhaps a little better. Um, but, but as I said, the style of this one, a lot, a lot better fooled by randomness. So it has me really interested in, in uh, the author. And, and as, as I mentioned before, I'm looking forward to reading, reading his other works this year and, and next. Yeah, as am I, and uh, you know, I, 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 don't think I'll ever find, I'll ever cease finding uh, Talib useful uh, and and interesting and hilarious, and uh, and so there's, I, I, I don't think I'll, I, I don't think I'll tire of, of of ever having something of his on 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 my list. So uh, I think that's a, it's a good time, a good. Uh, as good a time as any to uh, go ahead and wrap this show. So once again, if you've been enjoying our show, please uh, tell a friend, give us, give us feedback on, uh, on social media. You can follow us uh, via social media on Instagram, on Twitter at books of Titans. Also uh, (laughs) do us a favor, give us a review on Apple music or wherever you listen to your podcasts five-star reviews go a long way towards getting more listeners and uh and helping us out a lot on this uh on this podcast so uh yeah for eric rostad i'm jason staples this has been the books of titans podcast keep listening keep reading keep thinking and keep improving don't get fooled i pity the fool i pity the fool I made this.